Let the words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. Today in the church's calendar, it is Candlemas, which, uh, to be honest, is not something that we in New Zealand do much with. It's in the calendar. Um, it's not something that I actually remember very much when I was growing up, and I grew up in a pretty uber-Anglican family in an uber-Anglican church. And uh, the first time I really encountered it was when I was at a meeting in Jerusalem with uh, some other people involved in Anglican youth ministry, and we were there this time 12 years ago. So we all went off to St. George's Cathedral for the Candlemas service. Uh, and being an ignorant New Zealander, asked what that was all about. And um, the rest of the group looked at me with pity, as if I had no idea what being an Anglican was about. Probably fairly true compared to some of them. And one of the memories I have of that actually is that psalm that we said today, which still kind of sticks in my head for some reason. Um, They had a little, uh, the way they did the psalms was they picked one of the verses as a refrain, so at the end of every verse we would respond, there would be a leader and we would respond with um, one of those verses. So what is Candlemas? Well, it's the feast of the presentation of Jesus at the temple, 40 days after his birth. So... For those of you who are great at maths, we'll work out that February the 2nd is 40 days after Christmas Day. So on February the 2nd, Candlemas, this is the Sunday. Well, we could have had it last week as well, and the pew should actually said it was going to be last week, but no one talked to me about that. So today is the day when Luke, not Matthew, but Luke says that Mary and Joseph went to the temple And they offered the poor person's sacrifice for the firstborn son, the two birds. That was the poor person's sacrifice. It was supposed to be a lamb. So if you had the the wherewithal, that was what you were supposed to sacrifice. And the purification rites were done for Mary because she had become unclean during the birthing process. It's not in in, uh, Matthew because Matthew doesn't have them going anywhere near Jerusalem after the birth. They stick around Bethlehem for a while, which is where they live. They don't live in Nazareth at that point. And then if you remember, Matthew is the one where Herod has the ordering of the innocents. So they don't go anywhere near Herod. They go the other direction down to Egypt. So the two stories are quite different. From the 11th century, Candlemas, or the presentation of Jesus at the temple, or... It's actually called the Purification of Mary, in some of the the lectionaries, uh, became a major feast day of blessing. It was the time that the candles were blessed. The candles that would be used for the rest of the year were blessed. So the people would furiously make a year's worth of candles. They would be brought to the service this Sunday and they would all be blessed. We don't do that because we just go down to the warehouse whenever we run out of candles and buy the next lot. So ours are unblessed makes a difference. It just shows that we're pretty relaxed here in New Zealand. So that's why where we get the name from, Candlemas, the mass where the candles are blessed for the rest of the year. And why did they choose this Sunday? Well, I think it came from, uh, well, that day they chose it because of the words that um, Brenda read us. Uh, so that's why we had two gospel readings this morning. Brenda read us the one from Luke. And I read the one in the lectionary 
uh, for Epiphany, the fifth Sunday after Epiphany. And uh, in uh, the, the reading from Luke that Brenda read, we had the words from Simeon. So those of us who grew up with Evensong um, will remember uh, the words of the Nunc Dimittis. And this is not the traditional version, this is the uh, message version. God, you can now release your servant. Release me in peace as you promised. With my own eyes I've seen your salvation. It's now out in the open for everyone to see. A God revealing light to the non-Jewish nations and of glory and of glory for your people Israel. A God revealing light to the non-Jewish nations and of glory for your people Israel. So today, we, as we light our candles, we are reminded that Jesus is the God-revealing light for us gathered here and for all people. So, yes, the candles had a practical purpose in traditional churches, and have electric lights, did they? The candles were the means by which you were able to read stuff, but they also had a symbolic value of reminding people that Christ was the God-revealing light and that maybe we are the God-revealing light as well. We are part of that ongoing work. Which on the one hand is nice, but on the other hand, well, what does it really mean for us to be God-revealing lights? Especially when we live in a world that's been stirred up by the actions of President Trump. I have to say I still have trouble getting those two words in the same sentence and getting my head around that. Over the last week or so, we've had his executive orders, particularly the one around immigration and refugees. And tomorrow in this country is Waitangi Day. A day where, and both of those things evoke a lot of raru raru, a lot of heated conversation, we might say, debate. I wonder what Jesus, the God-revealing light, celebrated at Candlemas, has to say about both of those things. Well, for a number of reasons, this Sunday I kept both the readings. So both the reading for the Gospel reading for Candlemas, which was the reading from Luke, but also the reading from, uh, if you were ignoring Candlemas, which actually most of the Protestant churches do, and a few of the Anglican churches, uh, we were going to carry on through the uh, Sermon on the Mount. So last week we had the Beatitudes, which is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, and I thought, well, let's just keep it going. So no point skipping a week and then kind of getting back into it next week. The other, the other reason is that actually most of the resources I use are written by Protestants, and so there was nothing about Luke 2 on the internet. But there was lots about Matthew 5, so I went with where the resources were. So last week we did have the Beatitudes, and... Uh, those of you who were here a bit earlier would have seen, maybe, although most of your heads seem to be down, but up on the screen were what a small group of us rewrote the Beatitudes. Uh, and so our rewriting was up on the screen for about 20 minutes before the service, just kind of slowly rolling through. And we'll publish that in the parish magazine when it comes out in a month or so. In the Beatitudes, what Jesus did was basically... Turn the honour system upside down. 
So the word that we translate as blessed, lots of people say should more accurately be translated as honour. And Jesus lived, as people in the Middle East still today live, in an honour world. Honour is the most important thing. Your role in life is to maintain your family's honour, if not add to it. And so there were people who were seen to have lots of honour, and there were most people who had very little honour. And Jesus turns that honour system on its head. Because in the honour system, the people who are wealthy, the people who have influence, the people who are powerful, the people who have good names, they are the people of high honour. Well, they're not the people Jesus talks about. When he says, honoured are, it's all the people at the bottom. I mean, Luke, that's even more so. So Jesus turns this honour system on its head and he says, in God's eyes, these are the people of great honour. These are the people God is blessing, not the ones we expect. And then today he carries on and says, you are salt. So remember, Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's gone up a hill. It's not a very big hill, to be honest. If you go to Israel and go to the hill where the Sermon on the Mount was supposed to have taken place, it's quite a small hill, and it looks down on Capernaum. So it's just a little knob of a hill, way lower than the Mount, for example, uh, looking down on the city of, well, the town of Capernaum. And he says to them, you are salt. Now, we understand salt to be something we put on food for taste, but uh, in that part of the world, poor people cooked on fires, and you couldn't use wood because there wasn't a lot of wood, and what wood there was was probably the trees that grew crops like olives. So you didn't use firewood. You had to use something else. You used dung, sheep dung. But sheep dung, apparently, I've never cooked with sheep dung. I've just known what people have read. Uh, on its own isn't that great with cooking it and you need a catalyst to make it go well and that catalyst is salt cakes so you put a salt cake in your dung fire and it makes the fire burn a lot hotter and you can cook much more easily on it and so when Jesus is saying you are salt he's not saying a little bit of seasoning we put in your food to make it taste better he's saying you are the thing that gets put in the fire to make it cook properly we are the catalyst that gets put in the world that makes God's work cook properly. And then he goes on to say, you are light. Now, a poor person would have a one-room house. Everything happened in that one room, and they would need one oil lamp to light that house, that room at night. Now, when it was on, it was put on a lampstand so it could light the room, the house. But when you blew it out, if you just blew it out, it would soon fill the house with fumes and smoke. So when you blew it out, you put it under a bushel basket, and that would hold the fumes and the smoke. So Jesus says, you don't light off a lamp and put it under a bushel basket. That's what you do when you turn it out. Everyone knows that. You put it on a lampstand so it lights up the whole room and you can see around the room. So we are also the light that allows everyone to see. We heard from Simeon that Jesus is the God-revealing light of, for all. And then Jesus says, and you are light 
as well. We too, with Jesus, are the God-revealing light for all. But then Jesus goes on with these troubling lines. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish but to fulfill. But truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Does that mean we should now be going out, us blokes having prayer curls down our front because we don't cut our fringes and wearing prayer shawls and only wearing clothes of one fabric? There was obviously a lot of discussion within the early church about the place of the law. So Mark, not very keen on the law. Matthew and Luke, much more in favour of obedience to the law which is surprising for Luke, who was supposed to have written for a Gentile audience. So how are we supposed to understand this? Well, I think the key word in this passage is the word righteousness. Now, righteousness is often thought of as acting, and this is uh, from dictionaries online, uh, as acting in accord with divine or moral law, free from guilt or sin, the quality of being morally right or justifiable, and arising from an outraged sense of justice or morality, righteous indignation. That's how we usually think of righteousness, kind of obedience to law, and that makes us, uh, and that makes us righteous. And in fact, a lot of our theology is built around that. So lots of people understand the story of Jesus being, uh, God gave us a law, we didn't obey it, so God got angry with us and was going to punish us, but Jesus came and took that punishment, so now we are righteous because Jesus took the punishment and we can now get into heaven. And the understanding of that is the whole point of this whole thing is so that we can get into heaven, uh, and uh, that's how the story works. But in fact, well, you have to go about 1,100 years before anyone starts saying that's what the story is in church history. And there are a lot of people since then who say, well, actually, I think we got that wrong. And one of those people is the Anglican bishop and New Testament scholar and author N.T. Wright, who is not known for being outrageously radical. In fact, he's known for being pretty middle of the road, and if he push comes to shove, pretty evangelical. And he says that that's not the biblical story at all, and it's not what righteousness is about. So I'm currently reading a book of his about the theology of the cross while listening to it. And he says that the purpose of the cross is not to get us into heaven. When we read that bit from Matthew, and it says, get into the kingdom of heaven. Yes, the kingdom of heaven, but where is the kingdom of heaven? And N.T. Wright would say, it's right here. This is the kingdom of heaven. Here on earth. 
He says if we go back and read the Bible, if we start from Genesis, that this is the world that God created. This is the place where we are supposed to be. And he created us, humanity, to play a particular role in this creation. We are made in the image of God. And what that means is that we are to be image bearers to creation. We are to be the ones who are part of God's ongoing creative work. And that we are to reflect God's ongoing love and generosity and justice and compassion to all of creation. That is humanity's role. And we are to reflect creation's worship and praise back to the Creator. We are the intermediaries, the royal priesthood. Paul talks about that. We are the ones who stand between God and creation. That's our role. And all of this is based on our ongoing praise and worship of the Creator God ourself, ourselves. The law then was given to help people, the people God chose, to be particularly the image bearers and to show the rest of humanity how to be, that they were image bearers and that they should live as image bearers and what that might mean. The law was given as a as a guide, as a reminder for people about what it meant to be image bearers. We keep thinking the law was given so that if they obeyed it, people could then eventually get to live in the presence of God. And we keep forgetting that when the law was given, according to the book of Moses, not in history, but in the, according to the book of Moses, they were already living in the presence of God. as a pillar of fire at night and a pillar of cloud during the day. God was already there in the tabernacle. It wasn't a thing given to show them how to get to be in the presence of God. It was something given to say, you are living in the presence of God. This is what it looks like. But Genesis 2 tells us that instead of being image bearers, instead of worshipping the Creator God, we instead chose to worship idols. And the idols at that time were other gods, false gods, with little statues and things. But people would say today, we don't worship those things, we worship other idols. So what are our idols? Well, some of our idols are power, money, wealth, possessions, fame, our own safety, our way of life, our country. All of those are our idols. And like all idols, they lead to death. So, put all this another way. We are righteous not when we are morally good and obedient, but when we live lives centred in God and live as images of God, living as the light to reveal God's creation. When we are image bearers of God's ongoing love and generosity and compassion, to all creation and to all people. Then we are obeying the law. So what does all of this have to say to both Trump and his executive orders and to Waitangi Day? Well, I think 
you might disagree, but I think Trump's orders come out of a wrong understanding of righteousness. He and his supporters think that it's enough to be morally good, although I don't think Trump has a clue what morally good looks like, but anyway, a lot of his supporters think that they know what it looks like. But as I look on from afar, from this part of the world, it seems to me that some of those who are making decisions have replaced the worship of God revealed in the life of Jesus, a God of compassion and generosity and mercy and justice and love for all people, as Simeon says, with the idols of power and money and wealth and possessions and safety and their way of life and their country. And sadly, because they worship those idols, that will only lead to death, not life. And so I think from a biblical point of view, that executive order was wrong. But that's easy for me to say because I'm here in Aotearoa, far, far away from America. I can sit in judgment with ease and make comments because, well, mostly it makes no difference to my life. But tomorrow is Waitangi Day. And that is a whole different kettle of fish, isn't it? That's right here in Aotearoa. So if we are to be image bearers, if we are to be light that reveals God's compassion and generosity and love and aroha and justice in this land, what does it mean for Waitangi Day? What is it we long for tomorrow and the days beyond? What is it we think God longs for, for us and for this land, if we are to be image bearers? Well, I could probably talk for a long time about that, but I won't. I'm going to leave you with that question. And I think it's a really important question for us as Anglicans, because the Treaty of Waitangi is a particularly Anglican document. Our fingerprints are all over it. It was Anglicans who persuaded the British government that it was needed. It was Anglicans who negotiated the terms of it. It was Anglicans who took that treaty around the country and got it signed. It was Anglicans who were the ones who fought, amongst others, fought for it to be honoured. And it's the Anglicans who have placed it at the heart of our constitution as a church. Because we think it still has something to say to us as a country and to us as a church. So what does that mean for us as Anglicans with this treaty? That moment when we were part of God's revealing light. That moment when we were image bearers. What does it mean for us today as we think about that? So I'll let you pause and think about that for a moment and then we will... Uh, say the creed.